we have to look at our own failure if we're going to combat the obvious appeal of populists. In most cases, the populists have addressed underlying economic problems which other people have ignored. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, somewhat refreshed after a short holiday. And you just heard the voice of Misha Glenny, the British author best known these days for McMafia, a book that inspired a big-budget TV thriller. You'll hear him in conversation later in the podcast, where he talks about his latest project, profiling a group of political leaders he calls the Iron Men. Here in Brussels, it's the rentrée, the return to work after the summer break. But of course, it doesn't feel like the usual rentrée, because a lot of it is virtual. The sandwich bars, the cafes, the shops around the EU quarter still seem eerily empty, as many EU officials continue to work from home. Still, you can kind of feel the EU machine getting back into gear, and we'll be focusing plenty on that in the weeks to come. But now, let's get a first-hand account of Emmanuel Macron's trip to Lebanon and talk about the implications of the poisoning of Russian opposition activist Alexei Navalny with our podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome to our podcast panel, Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi there. And fresh uh, back from a trip to the Middle East with Emmanuel Macron, uh, but she's joining us even on her day off. It's Reem Momtaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hi, Andrew, and welcome back from your vacation too. Yep, and thanks for standing in last week. And let's get right to it and start with the big news uh, of the week. Uh, The news uh, that came from Chancellor Angela Merkel stating that Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition activist, had been poisoned and poisoned by Novichok, uh, this nerve agent uh, which is associated very closely with, um, well, with the old Soviet Union and its um, military apparatus, with uh, security services. Um, it's the same substance that Britain has said was used in the Skripal case. Now, you wrote last week that you felt that even though uh, this case is obviously a grave one, and at that stage I think we knew Navalny had been poisoned or that the Germans had said that, but we didn't know the substance, do you think that this will change things? You know, how do you expect Germany and the broader you know, Western community to react to this? Well, I think it does change things um, because when it happened, I think most people in the West suspected that Moscow was somehow involved in this just because it would be, uh, you know, quite odd for someone else to try to uh, poison the opposition leader randomly. And it wasn't clear, though, what what the substance was, as you said. And and now, I mean, this is like a a smoking gun, basically, that it turns out to be Novichok, um, which is something that, you know, toxicologists can prove. And I think it points a finger directly at the Kremlin, basically, because not a lot of people have access to this. And I think that the Germans in particular were quite surprised that, uh, you know, this is what it was. And you could feel that a little bit yesterday when Merkel was speaking. She seemed quite unnerved by this news. Alexei Navalny wurde Opfer eines Angriffs mit einem chemischen Nervenkampfstoff der Novichok-Gruppe. 
And, you know, I mean, you can only speculate as to why Russia would have done something like this. You know, maybe they were hoping that he would die and are surprised that he ended up surviving and, and uh, made it to Germany. But there are obviously a, a lot of questions surrounding it. I'm not convinced, though, that what Merkel said yesterday that, you know, well, Russia has a lot of questions to answer here, that they're going to kind of come clean on this. So I think it, it really will come down to is the West, is the EU, is Germany prepared to impose not just sanctions, but tough measures against Russia as a result of this? In particular, are they willing to halt the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is, has been a bone of contention within, uh, w- within the EU for some time, particularly between Germany and uh, Poland and the Baltic states? Mm. So the question really is, is Nord Stream 2, whether they're willing to go that far? How, how big a deal is Nord Stream 2, actually? We know it's become this very totemic issue politically, but economically, how big a deal is it? I think economically, it's not as big of a deal as people have, have come to believe. It's, it's obviously something that German industry has been pushing for for a while because of the security of the gas supply that, that it would bring. But in terms of volumes, you know, you probably wouldn't see much of a difference. And, you know, I I, I think that's why from a kind of purely self-interested point of view, Germany could say, well, let's just kind of drag our feet on Nord Stream 2 for now. We'll, you know, halt the construction of the the, the last few miles of of, of the pipeline in order to see what really happened here with Navalny. I, I, I don't know that they would give it up altogether, though. I think that that would also be kind of, you know, legally tricky for Merkel. But today you had uh, Norbert Röttgen, who's the, the chairman of the German Foreign Affairs Committee and somebody who is running to become the head of the CDU, say, you know, he does think that it needs to be on the table. And you also saw the opposition leaders of both the Greens and the, um, the FDP the Liberal Party in Germany come out calling for uh, Nord Stream 2 to be to be halted. So there, there is a lot of pressure, both from within Merkel's own party, as well as from the opposition to do this. So, you know, we'll see what she decides, because earlier this week, she said that she didn't think that Nord Stream 2 should be kind of part of um, part of this resolution or part of this debate. That was before the, the news hit, though, that uh, Novichok had been used. Right. Now, we know that Emmanuel Macron has uh, very much his own uh, ideas about Russia and how to engage with Russia. But Reem, we are going to let you off from uh, talking about that this week because you're just back very late uh, last night from an exhausting uh, trip uh, to the Middle East uh, with Macron. Uh, you ended up in Iraq, but the main focus of the trip uh, was Lebanon and was Beirut. So um, just give us a sense, you travelled with President Macron, you interviewed him on the way to Beirut. Give us a sense of what that was like to kind of be um, in the room with him, if you like, uh, discussing uh, Beirut, Lebanon, something, a place you know very well. And um, why is Macron's getting so involved in in Lebanon? Yeah, so as you say, um, I was invited to fly 
on the presidential plane to Lebanon. Perhaps some of our uh, listeners don't know, but uh, unlike the U.S. president, the French president doesn't have a traveling pool of journalists that is always on the plane with him. So being invited on the plane is is always sort of a part of a negotiation that happens between journalists and, and the presidency. And so I was invited to be on that uh, plane and then was invited to go up front uh, to see him and interview him. Uh, and so I, I walked into sort of the boardroom that's in the middle of the plane. Uh, and there he was sitting in his uh, white shirt and his trusty uh, sweater that he always wears on his on the plane. And actually, all of his top advisors. And I was there alone. And uh, before we started, I kind of made a joke about about that being slightly unfair. Well, I think um, I think the odds were still in our favor, uh, personally. <laughs> um, but uh, what struck you? What struck you most about what he said? You know, when you kind of think back on that, you had about half an hour with him, I think. Yeah. You know, what kind of stood out for you? You know, he he was so adamant about being more positive and more uh, sort of willful. You know, he, there's this word in French that is volontariste. And it means, you know, being someone who not only has sort of the, the right attitude and is positive and is optimistic, but sort of wills things, things to happen. Um, and so he's bringing all of that energy into Lebanon, which is a place that unfortunately has been, you know, in a deadlock on politics and reforms for decades. I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking years, decades. And so in our conversation, I asked him, you know, what makes you think that this is going to change anything? What makes you think that these same politicians who have been in power for the past 30 years, it's the same parties, it's the same people even in those parties, what makes you think they're going to change their their ways now? I mean, you're asking them basically to commit suicide, to change their very DNA. And he said, we're doing things differently. We're applying pressure differently. We're going to be setting up a follow-up mechanism that's going to be different, and we're going to make it happen. And I'm investing the biggest thing that I have, which is my political capital. And that is not something that perhaps other French presidents have done. He says he's going to come back in December to do his follow-up. In the meantime, he's setting up two international conferences to kind of verify uh, certain uh, deadlines that he put in this roadmap that these different Lebanese political parties have signed up to, reforms. And he's sending his foreign minister in November. I mean, that's a lot of very close follow-up. And why has he decided to invest so much, you know, political capital in this? Because it does look from the outside, you do think, why Why is he doing this? And and in a sense, kind of, why should he? Someone, you know, if I think, I know the, the French role in Lebanon is not the same as, you know, a colonial power, but a kind of outsider coming into, you know, a place where it formerly ran the show would not always be very welcome. What has been happening in Lebanon is there's been a political crisis with protests uh, in the streets since October asking for a complete overhaul of the political system. There's also been a financial meltdown because Lebanon defaulted for the first time on its uh, sort of paying paying back some of its uh, foreign debt. And the currency has been in complete freefall since. There's hyperinflation now. There's capital controls. People can't access their money in the banks. Only $200 a week you can withdraw from, from your bank accounts. There's also COVID that is now resurgent. And there was this explosion on August 4th that was massive uh, and caused damage in 40% of the Lebanese capital. I mean, it's just it's just insane. Now, why why would someone like Emmanuel Macron spend so much political capital on, on this country? There are various reasons. 
one, even on a, from a European perspective, you know, Lebanon has the highest concentration of refugees per capita in the world. It hosts more than 1 million Syri Syrian refugees, more than 500,000 Palestinian refugees for a population of about 4 million Lebanese inside Lebanon or 4 or 5 million. And if Lebanon collapses, then Europe is staring at a real migration crisis because they're on the Mediterranean, they can get on those boats and, and just dead pan it to Greece. And so Macron thinks we can't let this country fall apart, right? Migration crisis for potential mig migration crisis for Europe. Also, Lebanon is the scene of much of the geopolitical confrontation that we're seeing, not just in the Arab world, but kind of on a, on a global scale, you know. Uh, it's right next to Syria. Uh, Iran is very heavily involved. It kind of has like a, this umbilical bond with a party in Lebanon, which is called the Hezbollah, which is an armed party. Saudi Arabia is involved in Lebanon with its support for some in the Sunni community. Uh, Russia is more and more involved. Turkey is trying to gain foot hold. And so you have all of that. And of course, you have the US-Iranian confrontation that is also playing out in some parts in Lebanon because of Hezbollah's connection to, to Iran. So all of that means that, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a way for Macron also to play a role on all of these levels in a country that is rather welcoming to him. And the reality is, it's not just people who are against the political system that want the French president to be involved. The French, the Lebanese political parties themselves have asked for French assistance because they need a French bailout or at least an international bailout that the French government uh, has always sort of brought together with international conferences that they've put together. Okay, so just, I guess, briefly, if you can, I know this is complex, but uh, when people talk about reforms, what, what are the main things that he is seeking to achieve uh, in terms of, of change in Lebanon? And, and what did he not, what did he get and what did he not get from the trip that you were on? So he said he got the Lebanese parties to agree to a roadmap of reforms that has a calendar and deadlines. So the first reforms they have to focus on is the reform of the electricity sector, because in Lebanon, there still isn't 24 hours of power because of the corruption of the sector, where the various political parties take kickbacks. That's one. Uh, the financial audit of the system, so the central bank, but also the banks, because of the financial crisis that I was just talking about, because, again, the political parties parties are accused of having uh, basically stolen from the from the government coffers other issues like public procurement another issue with with corruption so things as as you can hear things that are very uh, concrete and specific and would hopefully have a very immediate impact on sort of Lebanese people's lives What he didn't get is uh, early elections. So he kind of cut his losses, took what he could get. And to be honest, most Lebanese didn't even expect him to get what he got. Mm. Well, we could talk about this uh, a lot more, but maybe just finally, um, Reem, you know, as, as you said, you know, you're Lebanese, you know Beirut very well. Can you give us a sense of, you know, how people have been affected, particularly by the, you know, the most recent crisis, as, you, as you've outlined, it's been kind of crisis piled upon crisis. But the most recent one, obviously triggered by this huge explosion, which really scarred the city. Um, you know, what effect has that had on people? What effect has it had on you? You know, in Lebanon, it's true that we've gone through so many conflicts, right? I mean, I, I wasn't, I'm not very old, but I've gone through at least a dozen of them. But there's something particularly traumatic 
about this explosion that happened in Beirut. And we've all been talking about it, whether we're expats or in, in Beirut or in Lebanon. We've all had a hard time sleeping over the past month. Um, it's very much on our minds. And we've realized it's because it's the first time that such a destructive thing has happened in Lebanon, not at the hands of a foreign enemy, but at the hands of the government that is supposed to be, you know, running the show and protecting kind of the people, right? So far, what we know is that the reason of the explosion is criminal neglect by by the government officials. Um, so that has been very hard to, to kind of digest. But also, no conflict with Israel before has led to so much destruction in such a little amount of time. We're talking a few minutes in the capital city, the way we've seen. And the city is truly scarred by it. Also, Beirut's history is all based on this port. Beirut became an important city in the Mediterranean because of its port. And the fact that the port exploded is just, it became a metaphor for just how unsustainable the system is and how destructive it has become for people's lives. Um, and, you know, people died in their own homes, you know, in, in the safety of their own homes. So there's also a metaphor there, which is that people are no longer safe in their own homes. Um, and then there's the real sort of financial hardship. Uh, people have had to, for example, change the, the blown out glass in their windows. And uh, because of the financial crisis, they've had to pay for it in cash, in dollars, which its value has now gone up by sixfold in Lebanon. So it's really taxing for people to be able to just even you know, build the shelter that they used to have because of all of these crises that we were talking about. So you feel when you talk to the Lebanese today, there's a real sense of despair, unfortunately. Uh, most of the people that I've spoken to are desperately trying to get a visa to leave or find the money to leave. And most are planning to leave forever. And that is something we haven't seen since the height of the civil war in the 80s. Uh, so it's really, I can't, I think, overstate what um, a difficult, traumatic, existential moment this is for Lebanon. Okay. Well, thanks for talking to us about it. We'll obviously follow. We know that you will follow uh, very closely uh, what's happening there and uh, Emmanuel Macron's efforts to improve things. Um, so get some rest, Reen. Uh Matt, I think you've still got some work to do. So, uh, <laughs> Absolutely, always. <laughs> I'll let you both go. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Now, let's have a dash of drama. When I met your father, he was a businessman. And in his business, there was a lot of money. So it was very dangerous. In Russia, they call everyone a gangster. Your uncle promised I could use your fund to move... That's a clip around. from McMafia, the TV thriller series about global organised crime, inspired by a non-fiction book of the same name by the British author Misha Glennie. I recently sat down with Misha for a virtual chat to discuss his latest project, an audible series called The Rise of the Iron Men. And I started by asking him who the Iron Men were. Well, I identified largely after 2016 that you were getting a new breed of leaders elected in largely free and fair um, elections. And these were people who um, were often quite unscrupulous in the way that they campaigned. They were often very good at campaigning, 
But once they got into power, they sought to start eroding the very mechanisms and institutions which um, got them elected in the first place. So it was first evident, I, I think, in two countries, in Hungary in particular, under Viktor Orban. This was before 2016. Uh, indeed, it was before 2016, which he came up with the phrase illiberal democracy, which describes um, uh, the sort of ideology of these these new leaders. And the other is uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey. And along with Narendra Modi, who's uh, another of these characters in India, they have a more systematic approach to power uh, than the sort of Aravists. And by the Aravists, I mean uh, Rodrigo Duterte in uh, the Philippines. And standing above all these characters is Donald Trump because of the fact that he's in the highest office in the most powerful country in the world. But the sort of spiritual godfather of them all is Vladimir Putin who is not an Iron Man, because with the best will in the world, you can't, you, you can't argue that Putin was uh, consistently elected in free and fair polls. But they all adore Putin, with the signal exception of the last Iron Man, who I consider in the podcast series, and that is Boris Johnson. So you start the series with Viktor Orban, uh, who you mentioned, and he's someone you first encountered uh, a long time ago. What, what, was, what were the circumstances there and what was he like when you first met him? Well, I was the BBC's Central Europe correspondent based in Vienna and basically I was responsible for coverage of uh, everything from Warsaw to Tirana, so Poland in the north and Albania in the, big the southwest. Big patch, I know, but nobody was interested in it except for me. And I went to this demonstration in, in 1988, which I'd been given a, t a tip off about, and it was a demonstration of young people and at its head stood this uh, young chap, Viktor Orban, who was, you know, rather unkempt. His hair was waving everywhere in the wind. But he had a real charisma, which I had never seen before in the Hungarian opposition. And looking back now, do you think that, that you and others misunderstood Orban and what he was really about? Or do you think he changed? I think he changed. I don't think he changed in his ambition. He was always ferociously ambitious and he was always making contacts, building up networks, and he loved politics. But for the first, I would say, 12 years of his political life, he was a standard centrist. What it was, was his defeats in the late 90s and early 2000s politically made him reassess how he could access power. And in particular, after 2008, the financial crash, which had a huge impact in Hungary. So there was real economic distress after 2008. And this is when uh, Orban identifies that a populist approach to politics can A, secure him the prime ministership in the first place, and B, enable him to refashion the nature of the Hungarian state and of Hungarian politics. And that's what he did. 
Meanwhile, in the background, of course, Orban is hoovering up all the useful uh, um, contracts and uh, economic structures for his family and friends. You know, this is one of the, the hallmarks of the populists, is, is they appeal to a wide selection of the, of the population and they will make sure that they get some fruits off the tree, the low-hanging fruits, but the real juicy fruits are retained for those people in power and their entourages and family and friends. We've seen that with Trump. We've seen that with uh, with Duterte. We've, we've, we're even seeing the emergence of what I call a chumocracy here in uh, the United Kingdom with Boris Johnson handing out important uh, public sector posts to people who are very ill qualified for them. Mm. So let me try and make the, the you know the populist case for the defence because what they say obviously is you know they are as you say legitimately elected they are in many cases uh, popular uh, they will also say people like Orban will say we didn't sign up to you know get rid of communism to lose our sovereignty to the European Union are some of their arguments valid or do you think this is all just a kind of masquerade to allow them to do what they want to do and to rule. Well, what I would say in their defence is is that I don't think that they're the cause of the problem in many cases. I think they are a symptom of the problem. And really, the problem lies with Western liberalism's comprehensive failure to use the opportunity of 1989 to promote uh, a just and economically equitable uh, society after we had won the Cold War. And that led to what I call the decade of delusion, the 1990s, where we all drank the Kool-Aid. We all believed that democracy was going to win, that liberal capitalism was absolutely fantastic. And while we were all being euphoric and gaining the fruits, the sort of immediate hit, the, the dopamine hits of privatization. I, there was a lot of money sloshing around, banks were beginning to speculate and so on and so forth. We actually missed just how catastrophic the consequences of these economic policies were going to be. Isn't it partly cultural as well? And I wonder if that's maybe even harder to fix in the economic part in that, you know, these are people, you know, you talked about uh, the people, if you like, who are left behind in Eastern Europe. You can talk about people in small or provincial cities across Europe who just don't feel like they culturally identify with what you might call a liberal elite. And some of these uh, leaders are very good, I think, at sort of talking their language. Trump is very good at it as well, right? That's absolutely true. There's no question about that. Of course, you know, this myth that the populists um, promote, that they are somehow detached from the elite. I mean, you know, United Kingdom, what can I say? Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, Rupert Murdoch. What's not a global elite about all of this? Uh, similarly, in the United States, you know, who has Trump surrounded himself with? He's surrounded himself with uh, uh, billionaires, and so this claim that they're draining the swamp, uh, to use Donald Trump's uh, phrase, is complete and utter nonsense. That doesn't, however, contradict what you were saying, um, that the metropolitan elite has detached itself from ordinary people. So, as you say, including Boris Johnson on this list, uh, you know, is obviously quite, quite controversial. Similarly, Viktor Orban supporters will say, 
you know, you can't compare me with the president of the Philippines who's accused of, you know, participating in death squads. Um, you know, what would you say to that criticism that these people don't all belong in one basket? I'll say I'm less interested when defining them in their particular quirks, peculiarities, their ability or otherwise for showmanship. That doesn't matter to me so much. What matters to me is the institutional structural mechanisms that they then seek to undermine once they're in power. Very clear with Orban, very clear with Erdogan as, uh, as well. But look at Boris Johnson and his brain, Dominic Cummings. What do they want to do? They want to restructure three things above all else. One is the civil service. They want to turn the civil service from being an, an apolitical, disinterested body which advises to being uh, almost like what Lenin referred to as uh, the, the trade unions, a transmission belt for their political will. Secondly... Uh, Johnson would like, if possible, to dismantle the BBC. The other thing is the courts. So those institutional things are very important. Then you have the playbook, which they're all using, the use of social media for campaigning, the uh, habitual lying. All of these things together means that Johnson is an Iron Man. He wants to skew democracy in the favour favor of his own personal ambition and those of his political parties. OK, well, if Boris Johnson wants to come on and defend himself against those allegations, we'll be happy to have him. Um, I wanted to, to ask a little bit about um, some of your other projects. And one, uh, you're obviously very well known for, for McMafia, uh, for other books you've written as well, but McMafia obviously turned into a, a TV thriller. But I, one of the things that perhaps um, people won't know so much, or not everyone, is a, a series you did for the BBC, a radio series called The Invention Of, which looked at various countries and kind of how they came about. I mean, a lot a lot of it, it seemed to me was about national identity, right? How national identity is created. And so I wondered if you could just talk a bit about the idea behind that, how you came up with that idea and what the kind of overarching um, point or theme that you kind of saw in, in kind of looking at the invention of different countries. Well, we the, the the series as a whole we refer to as how to invent a country, and as they're all available on the BBC. I've been for about twenty years or so. I've been working with a producer. Um, is it twenty years? I can't. No, it's about fifteen years. I've been working with a, a very gifted BBC producer from BBC Bristol called Miles Ward, and I'd always wanted to do a program about Germany. And rather than do something on 20th century Germany, because the only thing that British people know about Germany is, is Hitler and German football. And what gets obscured by our obsession with the rise of Nazism here in, in Britain is Germany's remarkable history from the end of the 18th century to the end of the 19th century even including the great defeat of liberalism in 1848. Uh, and that is, uh, Germany was essentially a powerhouse of uh, scientific and artistic humanist invention. And, and nobody really knows anything ab uh, about this. And as we were doing this program, we realized that we'd hit a formula for trying to understand where do peculiar national identities come from? 
So we then said, well, let's do the invention of, I don't know, where do we want to go? Italy. So and then we, we just, Miles and I, every year, we'd say, mm, who should we do next? One question I, I did want to ask about that. It's obviously, it's about the power of narratives and, and identity. Is the European Union failing? Can the, could or should the European Union be doing more to kind of forge these kind of narratives and symbols and stories and things that ultimately make people identify with a political entity? Well, now, uh, that, of course, is a, a big question. To some extent, Brexit has uh, covered up the multiple crises that the European Union is now facing. And uh, there are so many things that the European Union has to battle that you have to look at its ability to survive all of this critically. If you look at it, however, externally and have a look at what the, um, what the challenges that we are, that we face globally with an increasingly dictatorial uh, China under Xi Jinping. Uh, obviously, um, Vladimir Putin for the moment doesn't believe that he's he's going uh, going anywhere, and a deeply dysfunctional United States. The European Union of the major powers is the only one which aspires to hold up decent values, which is one of the reasons why Poland and Hungary are such a, uh, is such a, do represent a real threat to the European Union. So, you know, in a way, this isn't the first time that we've said it. Um, but the hour of Europe really has come now as the only coherent, outward looking political entity that is in principle committed to social justice and to reducing inequality, uh, is committed to mastering the crisis of climate change. It's the only one there. And so we need the European Union more than ever before. What we have, particularly as we see Merkel leave the stage, is we have a crisis of political leadership that has dogged the entire world since, well, I would say probably since the 19 since the 1990s. So uh, it's a big, big challenge. But, you know, I've felt for a long time, and I think COVID has underlined this, that it's no exaggeration now to say that the challenges we face are ultimately the challenge of species survival. So, you know, let's hope that... um, these wayward politicians will be able to come up with something for once. Right, well, I was just going, let me just uh, finally ask, what's next for you in terms of projects? I'm at the moment working on a book proposal called What Went Wrong, 1973 to 2020, which is a kind of sort of, you know, global history that uh, that deals with a lot of these uh, subjects, but I hope in a unique and entertaining way, but that won't be, that won't be hitting the bookshelves for a, a while yet. Okay. Um, oh, and then I do TV, so TV shows. So McMafia Two, we've got coming up, which I'm really, really? looking forward to. Yep, and uh, is it same ca- some of the same characters or some of the same characters? I'm not going to reveal who, but some of them okay. will be there. Okay, uh, we should have taken up quite a lot of your time, more than I imagined, but um, very much enjoyed talking to you. Thanks very much for your time. You too, no problem. Thanks a Cheers. lot. 
And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Just click follow or subscribe on whatever app you use. Please take a moment, if you can, to rate us by clicking some stars or even leaving a review. It helps other people to find the show. And our pop-up series on the US elections will be back with another episode on Tuesday. And we'll be back as usual next Thursday. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.